How many of you enjoy the prospect of a performance review at your job? You like that? I think it's fair to say that performance reviews are anxiety producing for most people. Even if you feel like you've done a, like a really good job that year. The thing that makes performance reviews so unsettling is A, that they're, they're subjective, meaning that the person doing the review might not see, might not even appreciate all of the good work that you've done. And then B, depending upon the emotional maturity and the self-awareness of the person that's doing the evaluation, there could be all kinds of personal bias, especially negative bias, that gets included in the evaluation that just isn't fair. Can we just acknowledge for the moment that not every person managing other people and doing evaluations should be doing those things? Can we acknowledge that? Yeah. There's some really immature people in management in almost every organization People who lack self-awareness. Inc. Magazine asked their readers to submit some of the most unfair evaluations that they had received. And it was fascinating to read what some of them have been told in their evaluations. For instance, I want you to listen to this one. Uh, One person said, my review included the fact that I had to be taught how to paperclip pieces of paper together correctly. I am not kidding. At this company, you had to put the larger loop of the paper clip in the front and the smaller loop in the back, and the person who told me this was astonished that I did not already know this, and that's why it was on my review. I should have known this vital office skill before going to work there. How would you like that review? Another one said, I was told I was too polite in my interactions with others. When I asked for an example of how I could improve, I was told to say please and thank you less often. But just imagine this one, submitted by someone named Andy. He said, many, many years ago, I was summoned by the HR director of a fairly big organization I worked for. Mr. X, I was told, needed to see me immediately. He said, I was flummoxed and panicked, racking my memory for any instances where I screwed up or where in my mind my work performance fell short. He barked, enter. Shortly after I knocked on his office door, he told me to take a chair directly in front of his desk. I sat there nervously awaiting my fate as he picked up a folder and opened it. And after a half a minute of silence, me waiting, him reading the content of the said folder, he looked up at me and said, sorry, wrong Andy, you're free to go. How would you like that? Can you imagine? We started a new series last week called Seven Letters. And the series comes from letters that Jesus sent to seven first century churches recorded in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three. And these letters amount to a performance review on each of these seven churches. And I felt as we launch into the beginning of a new year and another year of life here for City Church, it would be good for us to listen in on each of these seven performance evaluations. Jesus himself said that these reviews are applicable to every church throughout history, even City Church. And so studying these letters will allow us to do some important self-analysis on ourselves as individuals and on ourselves collectively as a church to see where we're doing well and where we could improve. And the nice thing is, the thing that we can be completely certain of is that Jesus' evaluations, A, are not subjective since he's the standard of truth, and B, that the only bias in these letters is that Jesus is completely for these churches, for us, for the people that are in every church of his. Absolutely no negative personal bias in these letters. He loves his church. He loves his people. 
And as we saw last week, Jesus is intimately involved in the happenings in his church because, the, because only the church, of all of the organizations in the world, only the church is equipped to deal with the ultimate issues that plague the world. And so, as goes the church, so goes the world. So if you would, turn with me in your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 2, last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus directs his first letter to the church in Ephesus. We looked at the first verse of this letter briefly last week. I want to look at it one more time quickly. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, speaking to John, the apostle John, he's having John write these letters. Jesus dictates them to John. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, uh, I don't want to go into detail about this because we did cover it last week, but remember the angel being referred to is here is probably the pastor of the church, the seven stars are the pastors of these seven churches, and then the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches themselves. And we know this because Jesus tells us at the end of chapter 1 what each of those symbols mean, and we looked at that also last week. But I do want to point out that those of you who are familiar with the Bible may recognize That this church in Ephesus is the same church to which the Apostle Paul wrote to 40 years earlier in the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesus was a a prominent church located in a prominent and what many people would think of as a very sophisticated city. Approximately a quarter of a million people called Ephesus home. You know, when I first, uh, many, many years ago, when I first started reading the Bible, I thought of all the places that were mentioned in the Bible, I thought they were all like small, little, tiny villages. But that isn't always true, and certainly not true of Ephesus. The Roman, Emperor, the Roman emperor declared it the supreme metropolis of Asia. Economically, it was the chief commercial center of Asia because of its strategic location as a seaport connected to all of the major roads within the interior of Asia. The city boasted a, it had a large stadium, a bustling marketplace, and a theater that sat, listen to this, a theater that sat approximately 25,000 People. It was a very sophisticated city. But it was also the center for the worship of the fertility goddess Diana. The temple to Diana in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Part of the cult of Diana included the use of ritual prostitution, where the worshiper became joined with the goddess Diana through sex with her temple priestesses. And so, not only the religion, but the whole city was morally bankrupt. One philosopher wrote that the inhabitants of the city of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. Yet at the same time, what's fascinating is that the church in Ephesus was a success story in early church history. It was planted by the Apostle Paul, discipled by Aquila and Priscilla, taught by Apollos, pastored by Timothy, and while some of those names might not mean much to To some of you, others will recognize them as heavyweights in the early church. The the church had a terrific heritage of spiritual giants and teachers. But I want to read on. Let's let's look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Now, I, I want to tell you that as we go through these seven letters, you're probably going to notice that they all have a, 
sort of a, a very similar structure. Jesus usually gives them some kind of commendation. And then uh, there'll be a complaint, if he has one, about the church. There'll be a correction, uh, something they can do to fix the complaint that he has about the church. And then finally, a word of comfort at the end. So let's just follow that outline this morning. And let's ask, what's the commendation? What's the commendation that Jesus has uh, for the church at Ephesus? Commendation. Well, there are a number of them. Among them, he commends them because they took their faith faith seriously. He says in verse 2, he says that he knows their deeds, their hard work. We don't know exactly what he's referring to here, but presumably this was a church that, like City Church, wanted to have an impact in its city. Perhaps their vision would have been very much like our vision up here on the wall. There's a woman here in our church who... here at City Church, who heads up a ministry to women who are in the sex industry here in Evansville. Teams of of women volunteers go to strip clubs twice a month to build relationships with these girls. They take snacks and gifts, also provided by the volunteers, with the hope of creating redemptive relationships that eventually culminate in leading these women to Christ and helping them find their way out of the sex trade. Someone else has agreed to hire these women if they need a job to help them get out. What an incredible ministry. Maybe the, maybe the church in Ephesus found similar ways to serve the temple of Diana prostitutes. We don't know. Maybe. Another man in our church is organizing men to be part of a prison ministry to the men in the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility in Sullivan County. The ministry is called Kairos. Perhaps the church in Ephesus did something similar to prisoners there in Ephesus. We don't know. Maybe. Whatever it is that they're doing, Jesus wants them to know that he knows it, that he's intimately aware of it, and he encourages them by commending them for it. And then in verse 3, he commends them too for their perseverance. These weren't quitters. These people weren't quitters in what was a very hostile environment, both as a Christian in the Roman Empire under the cruel persecution of the emperor Domitian, but also in a city that was so pagan, whose values and worldview and way of life were so opposed to the values of Christ. These people weren't quitters. Jesus sees these people and their perseverance, and he commends them for it. And you know, it occurs to me that there are many of you here today who have had to fight through significant opposition for your faith in Christ. Could come in many different forms. Maybe you've been ostracized, I don't know, at school, at work. Uh, Maybe you've been made fun of by people for your faith. There are are people in our church, I I don't know if you know this, but there are people in our church who've been cut off by their families for their faith in Christ, told that they're no longer part of the family. I want you to see and to take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows this. It hasn't escaped him. He's proud of you for staying faithful through all of the opposition that you have faced. He knows it. He sees it. He's aware of it. In verse 4, Jesus commends them for being spiritually discerning. And then if you'll skip down to verse 6, he says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, It is thought that they were a group who wanted to synthesize Christianity with pagan religions, which, of course, you cannot do. Whatever uh, they were, 
it does seem that they wanted to distort the truth of Christianity. And as I said a few minutes ago, the church at Ephesus, well, it was planted by the Apostle Paul. We know that because it's recorded in the book of Acts in the New Testament. But not only is the planting of the church recorded, but Paul's entire time there, as well as his departure, uh, is recorded there. Paul stayed in Ephesus to teach this church the truth of Jesus Christ and to get the church established. But at some point, he felt that he had to leave them to carry on the mission that God had given him. And Acts records his last words to this church. And it's very relevant to what Jesus is commending these people for. Listen to part of what Paul says to the elders of the church at Ephesus in his farewell speech, almost 40 years prior to this particular letter from Jesus to this church. Paul says to these to the elders of this church, he says, I know that after I leave, listen to this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So, he says, be on your guard. And it sounds as if the church at Ephesus took Paul's words very seriously. Jesus commends them for being on guard against, back, against bad doctrine. They weren't gullible. They were spiritually discerning. Jesus commends them for this because when the gospel is distorted, it ceases to be truth and it becomes destructive to people. Doctrine and theology matter. If you don't learn what you believe, you'll be gullible. You'll be led astray by people who are crafty enough to make you think that they're proclaiming Christianity but really aren't. Now, I could go on and on about that. I don't have time because I need to get to Jesus' complaint about the church. You know, it's, he commends them. But then he's got something that, he, that is a complaint that I think is very relevant to City Church. Verse 4, he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of ambiguous, first love. What was their first love that they had forsaken? Well, I have to tell you that commentators are all over the map about what Jesus means. You know, I think because of the phrase that we use often in our culture romantically to speak about first love, we think that Jesus is somehow referring back to their first love for him. I don't think that's what this is about. The word first is the Greek word protos, which can mean first in time as well as first in rank or order. Remember that Jesus commended them for something. We just saw it. Jesus had commended these people for something that had its roots in their church's history, and that was Paul's instruction to guard against false doctrine. I think if we go back into this church's history, I think we can bring some clarity to Jesus' complaint against these people. I want you to listen to what Paul says about them in his letter uh, to them that is recorded in the book of Ephesians. And this comes in chapter 1 of, verse 15, uh, chapter one of the book of Ephesians. Don't, don't turn there. I'll put it up on the screen for you to read. Because I think this helps us understand what Jesus means when he says you've lost your first love. Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. You see it? Your love for all God's people. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, again, notice Paul is commending them for their love for all God's people. Who does he mean by all God's people? Well, if you look at the context of that passage in Ephesians, 
Paul is emphasizing that one of the implications of the gospel is that at the cross, Jesus tore down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, that's the most significant message, really, of the book of Ephesians. Now, please understand something. Jewish people hated Gentiles. And understand, too, that the church in Ephesus was largely Gentile and Greek, and Greeks thought that all other races were barbaric. So the potential for racial superiority was rife in Ephesus. But Paul Paul commends this church for loving across racial boundaries. Forty years earlier, Paul says, you guys are doing a great job. You understand the implications of the gospel. You're loving across racial boundaries. That's the all God's people to whom he's referring. He's saying, you're not discriminating based upon race. You're loving Jews. You're loving Gentiles. You're loving all people. All God's people, you're loving. And so when Jesus says that he holds against them, that they have lost their first love, he's referring to the fact that over time, as the newness of the gospel wore off, racial overtones had begun to reassert themselves in the church. And this Jesus holds against them. They had lost their first love, the love that they had at first, when they first became Christians, when they first understood the implications of the gospel. They had lost that love that loved across racial boundaries. And Jesus holds it against them, again, because it denies the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you that it is fascinating that we're studying this passage. Dustin pointed it out uh, uh, earlier We're studying this particular passage on the day before the observance of Martin Luther King's birthday here in America. Now, I will tell you something. I would call that a coincidence, but I have seen so often over the years how God in his sovereignty combines a passage that I just happen to be preaching on with current events. I think God is speaking to City Church through this passage. On our wall, we say that as a church, we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. And a part of spiritual and social and cultural renewal is racial reconciliation. Now look, it doesn't take a genius to observe that we are predominantly a white congregation. It's not because of anybody's intent, it just, that's just the way it is. What that means is that most of us aren't often directly touched by racism. And it is easy to be unconcerned about racism or too busy to care about it. If we want to fulfill our vision, we can't allow ourselves to ignore the fact that our brothers and sisters in Christ in the city of Evansville experience racial bias. If we want to fulfill our vision, we need to spend time listening to voices that we may have previously ignored and embrace the call to work for reconciliation, racial reconciliation, and right relationships in our city. And to that end, I want you to listen to this portion of an important book about race and religion in America called Divided by Faith, and it was written by two sociologists, one by the name of Michael O. Emerson and the other by the name of Christian Smith. And they observe this. Listen to this. It's kind of lengthy, but it's worth it. What most distinguishes white evangelical Protestants from black Protestants is not their theology or even their desire for racial reconciliation, but evangelicals' lack of institutional thinking. 
When evangelicals think about solving social problems like the legacy of slavery and racism in the United States, they think almost exclusively in terms of personal one-on-one relationships. Which is why so many white evangelicals can imagine that the problem of racism is solved if they simply have a handful of friends of other races. To think of race this way is to miss the fact that race and racism are institutional realities based on a complex set of artifacts, arenas, rules, and roles. A few friendships that happen outside of those arenas and that temporarily suspend a few of those rules and roles do little to change the multi-generational patterns of distorted image-bearing and God-playing based upon skin color. Black Christians instinctively know that for the gospel to keep transforming America's sorry racial story, it will have to keep challenging these deeply ingrained patterns and the structures that even now perpetuate them. While white evangelicals who identify racism with a handful of dismantled artifacts like 20th century Jim Crow laws and legally segregated schools, cannot imagine that racism has a continuing institutional reality. Now, if that offends you, perhaps racial bias is more of an issue in your life than you think. Or at the very least, perhaps you need to sit down with some of your African-American brothers and sisters in Christ and listen to their voices explain institutional systemic racism to you. And look, of course, build friendships with people across racial boundaries. That's great. But I want to speak to those of you this morning who are in positions to hire, who are in positions to loan money, who are in positions to promote people up the economic and power ladder, Those of you who own businesses, those of you who are in management, in banking, in finance. How could you use your position to help fulfill this vision by promoting racial reconciliation in our city and helping people who are often systemically excluded from places of power and economic opportunity? How could you use your position to facilitate that? That's a way that we as a church can bring spiritual and social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. Jesus' complaint against this church in Ephesus is that racial bias has slowly crept its way back into their church. They'd lost their first love that they'd had early on when they first understood the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it wasn't anything direct that was happening. Perhaps it was just that they were ignoring one another. Almost like white evangelical churches in America tend to ignore the plight of African-American brothers and sisters in Christ here in America and the systemic institutional racism that they face. That's the complaint. Jesus offers a correction. And I want you to notice as we look at this correction, I want you to notice too how seriously Jesus takes this issue. Probably more more seriously than most of you would ever imagine. Verse 5, consider, he says to them, this is the correction. He says, consider how far you have fallen. In other words, fallen from from the early days. 
when you first understood the implications of the gospel and the love that you had across racial boundaries. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, notice how seriously he takes this issue. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Well, let's start looking at the verbs. Consider, repent, do the things you did at first. Let's take them backwards. Do the things you did at first. In other words, love across races and work for racial reconciliation. Repent. Some of us here might not need to repent of racism per se, but perhaps what we need to repent of is not caring because it doesn't touch your life. Or maybe you need to repent of not believing the voices of minority brothers and sisters when they tell you about institutional and systemic racism, when they say that racism is still a player, very much a player here in America. Maybe you need to repent of not listening, not caring. Consider, Jesus says, consider how far you have fallen. Fallen from what? Well, as I said, from the love that they once had that crossed racial boundaries as a result of the gospel. You see, racial pride and cultural narrowness cannot exist with the gospel, cannot coexist with the gospel of grace. They're they're mutually exclusive. Jesus is challenging these people to consider, to think out, once again, the racial implications of the gospel. Because the gospel isn't about merit, it's not about power, it's not about rights, what reason do any of us have to boast over another person, to think that we're higher or better than anyone else. The gospel heals the source of racial hatred and pride, the heart, and it creates an alternate kingdom in which the values of the world are completely reversed with regard to power and recognition and status and wealth and, yes, race. Jesus takes this so seriously. He tells this church, if you don't repent and change this, I'll take your lampstand. I'll remove your church. Why? Why? Because the cross reverses the damage that sin has done to the world. Do you understand this? That sin separates people in all kinds of ways, racism being one of them. But at the cross, Jesus, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, destroyed the barrier, the dividing walls between people. And a church that doesn't love across racial boundaries, that isn't deeply concerned about brothers and sisters of other races and their plights, is a church that doesn't really get the gospel and therefore cannot be the light that the world needs. Because again, as goes the church, so goes the world. In this particular church in Ephesus, among people who hated people of other races, Love across racial boundaries would have testified to the reality of Jesus Christ perhaps more powerfully than anything else that they could have done. Jesus says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the things that you did at first. Love across racial boundaries. And then I want to conclude. Let's look at the comfort that Jesus offers. He says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the the paradise of God. 
He who has an ear to hear. We said last week, this is Jesus' way of saying that what he has said throughout the letter applies to churches all throughout history. And I want you to understand, it's not like he takes the racial implications of the gospel any less seriously today than he did in the first century. But by way of comfort, Jesus says, but for the person who overcomes, and I take it that he means the persecution that's that they're experiencing in the Roman Empire, the city of Ephesus, the rejection that they receive for following Christ. He references the tree of life and the paradise of God. He's talking about the new world that he will create, the world over which he will reign, in which every wrong will be made right, every injustice brought to account. No more tears, no more sickness, no more death, no more separation between people, no more racism. Life as it was meant to be. And only he has the power to grant that because he is the Lord of the universe, the King of kings, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who holds the keys of life and death and who will in in the end be victorious and he commends this church and he encourages them and he comforts them with those words that no matter what it looks like today no matter what you're going through today i will be victorious in the end and what you're going through right now stick with it persevere stand tall because you are on the winning side because i the king of kings will win amen that's what he offers this particular church. And it's what he offers City Church today. Whatever persecution that you are going through, have gone through, Jesus knows. He's aware. The things that you do, the deeds, the hard work, Jesus sees it. He knows. He loves that. He, he's proud of you for it. But I'll understand that he's deeply concerned about racial reconciliation in the city of Evansville. And he's deeply concerned about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are African Americans who still experience severe racism in this country. He's deeply concerned about that. And for us to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond, we need to be deeply concerned about that too. A people who are being transformed by the uniting, unifying gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer? Encouraging words, Lord Jesus, and sober words. We recognize and confess that as a church, that as a people, as a predominantly white church, Lord, indeed, that we are often blind and many times uncaring about the things that our brothers and sisters in Christ, African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, and others, severe racism that they still face and experience in our country. Make us a people who are deeply concerned about that. Lord, I pray that those people in our inner body of believers here at City Church that are in positions of power where they could help someone in some way someone that they hire a person of, of color that they hire maybe that they make special arrangements to make a loan to maybe that maybe they're in positions of economic power whatever Lord I pray that those people would recognize that this is a part of what you are deeply concerned about and that perhaps they would consider how they could use their position to help other people of color. In the name of Jesus.
that would be part of us as a church fulfilling our vision statement. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your thank you for your love for all people. Thank you for the fact that the gospel tears down the walls that divide people. And thank you that you are victorious, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray today.